We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed the u.s men's national team released a public statement of support and solidarity with the u.s women's national team and their fight for equal and equitable treatment which boils down to a fight for more money but when everyone finally gets more pie which again is more money the players will have to address if their gain actually takes money away from other ussf membership programs Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we're talking about American soccer pie. In our uh, Mossy Makes a Case segment, Mossy's going to be talking about financial fair play. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking Klinsman. In our back three, we'll be talking Champions League, all Champions League out there, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am good. Uh, very refreshed after a rare weekend off. I know. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was strange. Uh, I did not know what to do with myself. I still got up early. We did not have Bundesliga work. Bundesliga continued on, but we just didn't have it because of uh, some other stuff that was on uh, on the channels. So it was. Uh, it was nice to be able to do that. Still got up. You still got up and watched soccer. I'm assuming, right? Watch soccer and also bang through all ten episodes of Narcos. The wow new did season you really? dropped late last week. Yep. I just finished binging a uh, show called Halt and Catch Fire uh, off of uh, AMC, I think it was. Uh, it was recommended me, to me by somebody. Phenomenal. For an 80s person like me, it was wonderful. It goes through the whole development of hardware and software starting in Texas and then obviously going to uh, Silicon Valley and that whole thing. Uh, just fascinating show. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. All right. Also this weekend, at the recommendation of our Bundesliga producer, Jeffrey Hyman, I uh, listened to a podcast series on the assassination of Lincoln and the aftermath of it, which, uh, you know, with this being President's Day. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One wonderful. All right. So you did that. My my son was uh, reading about the Lincoln assassination and the aftermath and you know, the barn, running to the barn and the burning the barn and all the different things that happened. So, wow, we're, we, we are incredibly uh, historic when it comes to this. Mossy, I don't know if you saw this uh, over the past uh, few days, but there is a, you know, something that, is, that has infected society in terms of what we are talking about. And where do you come out on the debate that is dividing society right now on to recline or not to recline in economy class? Uh, for those that don't know, and I can't think that there are many out there, a video emerged over the last few days of a, uh, a woman in, a, uh, in an airplane, and she reclined into the last row of the economy class, at which point, obviously, she comes into the uh, 
<laughs> you know, the, the sphere of the person who was in the last row couldn't recline, not that that should matter, but he got very irritated with this and proceeded to bang the back of her, uh, the back of her seat. Where do you come out when it comes to the recline debate? Against the reclining. Against reclining. Yes. Okay. It's actually, I've always had certain social situations that I think are the ultimate measure of a person's mm -hmm. uh, ethics. Uh, you know, one of them is if you're at a restaurant that's crowded and people are waiting for a table and, and your group is done eating, if you just sit there and linger and chit-chat or if you feel any sort of urgency to get up and leave, if, you know, you're, you're in a parking garage and you get in your car and you see that somebody else is waiting to grab your spot, if you just sit in your car for five minutes making phone calls and going into your, your – you know, so there are certain situations that sure. I think are sort of, and, and I've always looked at that as one of them. I mean, to me, reclining your seat as far as that, that person did uh, when you know that, you know, the person behind you is going to be so inconvenienced by it, I think that's bad form. I'm against it. Well, as we know, the most important thing is what I think. So uh, here's what I will tell you uh, as a seasoned traveler. Well, I think, I think we can all agree, and I want to speak for everybody, when I say that both the woman in this and the man in this are both Okay, so that's without a doubt. Uh, having said that, I don't recline out of respect for the other people. However, when I don't recline, I still get the feeling that, look, this is something that is part of the mechanism of the seat that I am paying for. Okay, so the ability to recline, the ability to put my table down in front, that's all stuff that you are paying for. It makes no sense in, in a part of my brain to say, well, if I'm paying for a seat that reclines, shouldn't I be allowed to recline without being, uh, you know, uh, without this outrage and this incredible condemnation coming from all different, uh, all different parts? And for the person, if somebody were to recline into me, there's no chance in hell that I would do what this gentleman did, <laughs> smacking the back of their, uh, of their seat in, in, a, in a petulant type of way. I might be silently miffed and irritated, and I might have all sorts of thoughts about who this person is and where they were raised and, and, and all that, but there's no way that I would do, uh, do what they did. But it is divided society right now. There are people that believe you should, because you paid the money, you should be allowed to recline in a seat that is designed to recline, and there are others, as, uh, as you said, that just believe that this is not something that any civilized society or person or human being in society would ever uh, believe is appropriate. Anything else, Mossy, about that? Nope. No, I'm sure everybody else has their uh, their ideas uh, their ideas out there. All right, we got a good show today, and uh, I'm excited to get to it because we're talking about a bunch of different things. You ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week we start the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective, and this week it goes a little something like this. This is about pie, American pie and how much everyone thinks they deserve. The U.S. men's national team released a public statement of support and solidarity with the U.S. women's national team and their fight for equal and equitable treatment, which boils down to a fight for more money. The men have long been conspicuously quiet relative to the women's very public legal battle with the United States Soccer Federation over fair pay. That the men chose now to cozy up with the women is a prudent business strategy and one of self-preservation. After all, the men are trying to sign a new deal. And when it comes to a position of leverage and bargaining power, the men remain at an all-time low. The women, on the other hand, at an all-time high. But when everyone finally gets more pie, which again is more money, 
the players will have to address if their gain actually takes money away from other USSF membership programs, including grassroots, coaching, refereeing, and youth development. The simple response they should have? Without us, you have no pie. But none of these players wants to be perceived as being greedy and hurting the game, especially since many have built their brands on fighting to improve the game. But this new alliance could also help establish that the national team is the same, men or women. But if that's the case, then should our U.S. Paralympic, beach, or futsal national teams also be treated equally by the Federation? After all, who knows how popular they could be if given the same funding, marketing, and support by the Federation? If players say no, they risk looking hypocritical, disingenuous, and greedy. Pandora's box. See, everyone wants a piece of the pie. The question is, and the question always is, how much are you willing to share? All right, Mossy, there is my uh, State of the Union for this uh, week. Thoughts? Uh, I guess I'll start it off with a question to you. Do you believe that all the national teams are the same and should be treated equally? No, there has to be some consideration given to how much revenue they generate. But you do recognize that the federation is more than just the women's team or the nas- or the or the men's national team at the at at the highest level, and they have a responsibility to a membership and to the programs and the initiatives out there, uh, not just in terms of funding them, but in terms of how they treat them to treat them on an equal basis, right? So you're trying to reframe this as perhaps the women need to be more considerate of, of teams that are even worse off than them in terms of no, funding? No, and, and I'm trying to make the point that the United States men's national team, the United States women's national team, while they are the generator without a doubt of this pie and most of this pie in terms, and they are part of an organization, a, a voluntary part of an organization that is responsible to all of its membership in all of its form. Now, without the men's and women's national team generating that type of money, there is there is no pie. That's why I said that in the, uh, in the State of the Union. And that's why I just think it's very, very interesting as we go forward and all of these lawsuits continue on, come to fruition, whatever it ends up being, examining what is the United States Soccer Federation? Who are they responsible to? And look, I always say you you are worth what you can negotiate. And that applies to the men, that applies to the women, applies that applies to anything. But one of the arguments that the women uh, have made over the last couple of years in this in this fight, and this very valid fight and fair fight, is that the United States Soccer Federation, okay, can say, well, yes, but the men generate more money at, at times, or, or the men have generated more money, or the men are more popular in the greater scheme of things. And the women oftentimes have come and said, yes, but if the same amount of marketing and the same amount of money and resources had been put into the United States Women's National Team program, think of what we would be. But doesn't that argument apply to anything? If you put the same amount of marketing into our futsal team or our beach, uh, volley- uh, beach volleyball, our beach soccer team, these are all, you're all representing your country. Okay, And if we start to say, yes, this one's more important than this one, and this one's better than this one, and this one deserves more than this one, well, why do they deserve more? And th- these are the, you know, look, these, I don't have answers to all these questions. I just think it was fascinating to see the U.S. men, who, as I mentioned, the State of the Union, have been so quiet uh, over, the, over the last couple of years. And, and once again, you're, you're responsible for yourself, but you are part of a bigger entity in, in the uh, United States Soccer Federation. And so I get why at times the men have said, well, 
we're going to be quiet now because things that we do and say may impact our ability to negotiate the best possible deal for, a deal for us. Everybody's out for themselves, okay? And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing to be out for yourselves. You are responsible. The people that, that represent the United States Women's National Team are responsible for getting the best possible situation and the best possible deal in place for the U.S. Women's National Team as, a, as the representation for the Men's National Team. But the United States Soccer Federation, while the revenue-generating force is primarily based in the men's team and the women's team, the United States Soccer Federation is a collection of a lot more than just the men's, uh, men's and women's team. And if and when a program that is involved in the grassroots or the inner city or that is helping the future, if that program is affected by the, the fact that the women or the men are taking a, a percentage that's even more so, and you have to take, look, there's only so much money out there, and you have to take it away from somebody. Are, are the men and women willing to step up and say, yes, this is what we deserve? And if it means that another part of the United States Soccer Federation suffers, and therefore young boys and girls who potentially could be benefited from the money that is there, they are going to suffer, or coaches, or refereeing, or whatever it ends up being, that is going to suffer because I want mine. Okay, fine. But understand that that's what possibly can happen. And this is the argument that the Federation is, uh, is certainly, uh, certainly going to make. I think it is a valid argument, but it goes back to what I said. The U.S. women and the U.S. men are going to turn around and say, guess what? The only reason that we're arguing over this pie is because of us. Because without us, you have nothing. Right. But I think it's interesting that you're now lumping the U.S. men's and women's national teams together. The women have viewed themselves as the aggrieved party relative to the men, but you're now sort of lumping them both together as like the, the power entities uh, within U.S. soccer and sort of looking at the money they're making, taking away from from other programs below them. So you're sort of- It applies of, to the men too. It, it applies equally to the men. It doesn't matter who it ends up being. You're, you're taking it away from someplace, okay? And yes, I am I'm equating the two. And, and as I said, in the State of Union, they have- kind of at least publicly now align themselves. I don't know if the women want that, want that because let's be honest, the women right now are at an all-time high in terms, like I said, of their power and their, and their leverage right now and their ability to negotiate a new deal. Well, the women have argued that they generate as much revenue as the men. And also they keep making this point that we win and they don't. And, and to the extent that the U.S. men's support has been lacking up to now, do you think it maybe has something to do with that, that they feel disrespected by the way in which the women have gone about making their case, that it's created a bit of a contentious uh, dynamic between the men's and women's teams? Oh, uh, listen, I think that there is, behind all of it, it's a, uh, you know, f from a men's perspective, I think that they, they saw the attention and rightfully so, the attention. I think I, I think it does rankle some of them when you say yes, but we win. Okay, fine. But it is it, it, it is it, either it is a little apples and oranges, or it or it isn't. And that's why I, this very public equating of the two I think is important because where does it stop? Where where does it stop in terms of the national teams that the United States Soccer Federation is responsible to that is beholden to that is responsible for uh, for the resources and the support that they give, where does it stop? What national team doesn't deserve it? Is it because you're playing on on sand that you don't deserve it? Is it because it's a Paralympic uh, sport that you don't deserve it, and it's not as and it's not as popular? And we just we go this, through this thing again uh, and uh, again and again and again. And once again, I. I don't necessarily have the answers to this. I just thought it was fascinating because it continues 
to bring up questions as to who's, for lack of a better word, who's more important. And when you're, when you're representing your country, shouldn't that, if you're representing your country, it's, it's important no matter what. It doesn't matter where you're representing it or how you're representing it. But then I guess you could, you could say, well, all right, Alexi, but uh, what about the, the youth national teams? Aren't they just, uh, aren't they representing their country as much as anybody else? And so therefore, shouldn't they deserve equal with everybody else? And that's why I said, maybe it's Pandora's box. And I know there's lawyers out there saying yes, but, and they're going to argue, and this is, this is why this is being uh, played out in the courts, is because the lawyers are going to get involved. And I, I, look, while people are going to get a bigger piece of the pie, the people that are going to get paid are the lawyers. That's always what's happened. And this is why the United States Soccer Federation is spending so much money right now on all of these different lawsuits, because they do have a responsibility to everybody, not just to the women's team, not just to the, uh, to the men's team. So... U.S. soccer held its annual general meeting in Nashville this past weekend. What did you make of this episode where during an open forum, a uh, U.S. Soccer Federation board member who was an elderly man who represented the U.S. in the 60s got up there and went on this long diatribe against the women's team because of the uh, celebrations and the win over Thailand. Yeah. And our colleague Heather O'Reilly was apparently yeah, in the room and, and got up and pushed back. And and this story leaking out, a lot of people think this was, again, a bad look for U.S. soccer and just terrible optics. It was fine. It was fine. Uh, just, to, you know, just to give some, some details, Stephen Flamhoft, uh, who is a former national team player, uh, got up in the AGM, as you are uh, able to do. This is the forum to do it. You're able to express whatever you feel about it. This is a, a, uh, a public and on-the-record type of scenario where you're able to stand up and say whatever you want. I completely disagree with what he said, and this is I'm not, not to rehash what happened last summer about the celebration and stuff like that. I think you, you celebrate. You're at the World Cup. You celebrate. I don't care about that. But I also completely disagree, disagree with the way in which this, uh, this cancel culture has brought up the fact that this was you know, a, a old person uh, or a white person or a conservative person. And this, you know, our friend Grant Wall was framing it as, you know, this is, this is what the United States Soccer Federation is, and it's bad optics for the United States Soccer Federation. No, it's, it's a guy having an opinion, okay? Not be, and it doesn't matter that he's a guy. It doesn't matter that he's white. And I don't know if you could tell by the looking at him whether he was conservative, but this was an opinion that a lot of people actually shared. Some people that I know that had nothing to do with how old they were or what race they were or where they were from. Rob Stone. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's plenty of people out there that share this, uh, share this opinion and that, that he was torn down simply because he had a different opinion. Uh, you know, it's it's indicative of the of the times that we live in, unfortunately. But you mentioned recently how some of the good that U.S. soccer is doing gets overshadowed by the bad, mm -hmm. and you could argue this was another example of it because at this event they honored Joe Ellis. Right. They started a Joe Ellis scholarship to help uh, women's coaches, uh, but all anybody's talking about was this exchange at the meeting. Yeah, but this is what it's designed for, and. People are angry because, number one, most people are angry because uh, of who said it. Number two, people are angry about what was said. This, this was an opinion. And it was, a, it was I think, the, the, a lot of people didn't like it. You shouldn't have expressed it at this forum. You must admit the dynamic now between the women's team and the U.S. Soccer Federation is very awkward. You know, you have Carlos Cordero, God bless him, but he's constantly sending, firing off these tweets congratulating the U.S. women and, and, and talking about how great they are. And I hope he doesn't read the comments on those tweets <laughs> <laughs> because it's... It, 
this we're not going to solve it here today. And Carlos and company over there, uh, you know, I think they have made some strides. As I said, some of it gets obliterated because that's just what people want to do. They want to tear it all down. They want to see it burn. They want to criticize. They want to be negative. And there's plenty of stuff to point to, uh, not the least of which this the continued lawsuits and the amount of money that is being spent right now when it comes to the United States, uh, United States Soccer Federation. But I, I hope that it gets sorted out. I will forever uh, stand up for somebody who is given the opportunity in that forum to stand up and voice voice their opinion. I will defend that person for giving that opinion, even an opinion that I disagree with. Okay, and so you know, I, I it, it it was a we knew that that was going to be the talk of it, and there's so much more that went on in that, that in that AGM. And we should say Cindy Parlow was uh, reelected. She was vice reelected president. Uh, vice president. Uh, congratulations uh, to her. Yeah, and, and Carlos Cordero was touting that along with the appointments of people like Ernie Stewart and Kate Margraf and Brian McBride. A big point of emphasis for him was uh, having soccer people make soccer decisions. I mean, do you look at that as a real sign of progress? I, uh, I've done the soccer people thing, and <laughs> it. it, it you're either smart or you're not, okay? Like I said, I've seen plenty of soccer people that are complete morons, okay? And I've some, seen plenty of people that are not what you would consider traditional soccer player, soccer people that are incredibly intelligent and that I would hire any, any day. So just getting soccer people in is not the answer. Getting good people in, smart people in, is the answer. It is amazing how time flies. Carlos Cordero is approaching the midway point yeah. of his uh, first term. Is it really? Wow. We our first podcast was right before the election. Well, I think you know. I think there's going to be a lot coming up here, and we'll finish it with this. There's going to be a lot, as I said before. Winning solves so many of these problems, or at least covers up so many of these problems. And as the women progress through next year into the Olympics, uh, as some of these lawsuits hopefully come to f uh, fruition in one way or another are, are solved, as the men hopefully qualify for the Olympics, uh, hopefully qualify, or at least are on their way to qualifying uh, to, uh, when it comes to the World Cup, and a lot of this, uh, a lot of this gets solved. But that still isn't going to decide how that pie gets divvied up. And I'm just going to be fascinated to see how that pie gets divvied up, how much each team gets, and then how they justify what they got other than simply, well, we made the money, we deserve the money. Because it's not as simple as that because specifically of the United States Soccer Federation, the way that it's structured, and the fact that it's not just about the men's team and the women's team. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? Uh, my case is that UEFA are making their last stand. Last week, European football's governing body sent shockwaves around the world by announcing that Manchester City will be excluded from the Champions League for the next two seasons due to serious violations of financial fair play. City paid the price for the fact that in late 2018, German magazine Der Spiegel published a series of emails that they obtained from a Portuguese whistleblower named Rui Pinto. Emails that revealed that City had been lying to UEFA for years, exaggerating how much money they were bringing in in sponsorships in order to circumvent the rules. But what also became apparent to anyone who read those emails was the complete lack of respect that City had for UEFA. They view them as nothing more than a nuisance, and frankly, they're not alone. 
In the last few years, these so-called super clubs have been able to hold the threat of a super league over UEFA's head, using it to gain enormous power and influence. UEFA also had to stand by and watch FIFA, over their objections, organize an expanded Club World Cup that will include several European clubs. Well, uh, last Friday, in handing down this punishment to City, UEFA finally said, enough is enough, it's time to remind everybody who's the boss. City's reaction was to suggest that there's something inherently unfair about the fact that this case was initiated by UEFA, prosecuted by UEFA, and judged by UEFA. But as Jonathan Wilson pointed out in a wonderful piece in The Guardian, when they were submitting their financial books to UEFA in order to play in a UEFA competition, who did they think would be adjudicating all this? Look, we can debate the merits of financial fair play, but here's the bottom line. As long as these rules exist and everyone agreed to them, they have to be enforced. Otherwise, you risk rendering those who came up with the rules completely irrelevant. Ooh. All right, so this, this news broke and all hell broke loose uh, with it because of the ramifications, many of which you did such a great job of, of outlining there. Uh, just for people that, that maybe aren't up on what the actual rules are and what they were broken. And I, I don't want to get in the weeds, so just from a top level, 30,000-foot 30 30, uh, level, give us a, an idea of, of how this happens. So these are rules that Wafer put into place about a decade ago, stipulating that clubs can only spend what they bring in in revenue. They're trying to guard against some rich owner buying a club, spending all this money, and then a few years later losing interest and leaving the club with all this debt that they can't afford to pay. And so basically all European clubs have to submit financial records to UEFA to prove that what they're spending on players is actually money that they're bringing in and sponsorships and revenue and such. And in the case of City, uh, UEFA found that they haven't been complying with that. They've actually been exaggerating enormously how much money they're bringing in in sponsorships and cooking the books to make it seem like they, these sponsorship deals were, were more lucrative than they were. And instead their owners were just like footing the bill and, sure. and, and pay, spending sure. money of their own. So it's not an outside sponsorship when it really comes down to it. It's just an owner putting more money and calling it a exactly. sponsorship and therefore you can call it a revenue. And by the way, this was something that was called ahead of time when this all came about. This is what clubs are going to do. So now they've done it. Uh, and in this case, well, one of them has done it allegedly. Uh, and, and now they're going to get, uh, now they're going to get punished. You mentioned the, the whistleblower and the, does this happen if this wasn't made so public? Because you just said that all of these, uh, that uh, UEFA will, will have had all of the paper. I mean, it's, you have to submit your paperwork. So theoretically, they would have been able to see it, whether this whistleblower did this or not. But do you think that this is a direct result of that whistleblowing? No, I don't think this happens without that. I think this made it so naked and public that UEFA would have lost all credibility. Um, so that's why I say this is sort of their last stand to try to wrestle some control back from the super clubs because they feel like they've ceded too much in the last few years. And this would have been ridiculous to let this slide with everybody know, knowing this is going on. So I, I do think that a leak and that, that Der Spiegel publication was you, crucial in this whole thing. Do you think that the financial fair play guidelines, just in a general sense, do you think that they were needed and that they are a good thing? I mean, why shouldn't you just, if somebody wants to spend a boatload of money, why shouldn't you just let them spend a boatload of money? Exactly. There is this debate now. Miguel Delaney wrote a fantastic piece last week about how top-heavy and predictable European football is becoming, which is something we, we've discussed sure. uh, quite a bit. And, and there are people wondering if financial fair play might actually make the problem worse because you're actually uh, making the, the elite super clubs even more elite because, you know, the likes of Manchester City, PSG, they're, they're clubs that have sort of joined this elite group more recently. And so when you look at the super clubs around Europe, you have some that 
got there somewhat artificially, like Manchester City and PSG, and and then you have others like the Real Madrids and Manchester United that are these giant brands that are that are always going to find ways to, to make money and then put it back into the club. And so all you're doing with financial fair play is you're sort of eliminating these artificial ones, but you're still going to have these clubs at the top of the mountain that are earning way more money than everybody else and able to spend way more money than everybody else. So, so what is financial fair play really accomplishing tangibly on the field in terms of trying to, you know, sort of help this issue of, of the sort of top heaviness in the sport. Now, it should be noted that they can appeal this, and by the summer, they have to have this sorted out one way or the other. I, I would believe that this is going to be upheld. So you're looking at a Man City that at the very least, whether it ends up being one year or whatever it means, is not going to be playing in Champions League next year. So if I am a player, and look, we can talk all about holding the badge and kissing and doing all that kind of stuff. They're mercenaries. Players are mercenaries, especially at the elite clubs uh, and where uh, they're making ridiculous amounts of money and they are playing in that super club type of status. So what, what do you think happens to those players? And more importantly, I guess in this particular instance, one of the greatest coaches ever to uh, ever to coach uh, and managers in Pep Guardiola. What happens? Yeah, so City are going to appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and everybody thinks there's going to be a decision rendered by July because you have to know which clubs right. are going to be in the Champions League. That's when Champions League qualifying starts. If they lost that, they could theoretically appeal the Court of Arbitration for Sport decision and take it to, like, the Swiss Supreme Court, but it, that would be a real long shot. I mean, the, the CAS, that's kind of the whole ballgame for them. And they're talking as if they are very confident that this is going to be completely overturned. I think more, that might be false bravado. More than likely, they'll just reduce it in half, and it'll be one season out of the Champions League, which would be, from the standpoint of the Premier League, it would be the fifth-place team getting that spot, presuming right. City finish in the top four. And, yeah, so what would that mean? I actually think... That, you know, Pep is a manager that's very irritated with this obsession with the Champions League. And it just offends his sensibilities that people judge success or failure of a season based on one result in a knockout competition where the ball doesn't bounce your way. So there's part of him that actually would find it refreshing to be able to coach in a season where he doesn't have the Champions League and he could just concentrate on the domestic stuff. The problem is, what kind of players would he have to work with? Right. I think that's what would ultimately dictate Pep's future. If, if, if the players leave, and, and also if City aren't able to replace them, because that's the, the long-term effects of this is is it going to change the way the cities and PSGs operate? And it, whether, you know, a club like PSG now, it, they might have wanted to go out this summer and, and make a big signing, and then they have to think about the optics of that. Oh, wait a minute, in the wake of what just happened to Manchester City, can we go out and spend 100 million euros on a player, and City obviously have to consider that too. So I think that's where Pep, could, you know, that, if he senses that he's not going to be able to be given a team to compete even domestically for, for trophies, you know, th that's where, you, you know, he might look to leave. But I mean, as to the point I, I raised earlier, I mean, do you think that this is sort of a, because I know you've spoken, you'd like to see a salary cap. You'd like to see the the, the leveling out of the playing field and do you think that in a way financial fair play all you're really attacking is these nouveau riche clubs but you're not really addressing the issue of the Bayern Munichs and the right. Real Madrids and Barcelonas and Manchester United who tower over everybody else I mean Manchester United not so much on the field these days but you know what I mean right. that, that you're sort of you're not really addressing that inequality in the sport. Yeah I mean look I, I, I talk about super clubs all the time I, I love super clubs because they're clubs where as many people hate them and love them they're clubs that spend more money than anybody else having said that I can recognize and respect when there is parity, uh, albeit manufactured in many cases, that that for both players and coaches is a much fairer way to judge who they are. And, you know, Pep came out with a quote. I don't know where it was from. I can't remember, so I apologize for not attributing it or anything. like. But he, would, he did an interview, and 
you know, they asked him, is, is he the best coach or the best, the best manager? And it was, it was incredibly enlightening um, and refreshing to me to hear him say, I'm not who I am without good players. And if that's, and like I said, I'm not discounting the fact that, that great managers have to be able to manage incredible personalities and, and that that is a skill in, it, in and of itself. But I just think we've gotten so far away from actually coaching or managing or coaching them up. And it's so hard to find that equality, which is why Champions League, I think, to a certain extent, is that arbiter, is that that moment when we can finally judge these super clubs against real competition uh, and equal type of competition, much more equal than a lot of times when they're playing in the league. And that's why I think it's, it's so important. That's where I'm really judging Pep. That's where I'm really judging some of these, right. these great managers. Yeah, watching this debate play out has been interesting the last few days. I know Roy Smith completely rejects the notion that the only way to get from non-elite status to elite status is to have a rich owner buy your club and be willing to spend his own money. He thinks that through real good work in the youth system, hiring the right manager and, and, and making savvy signings, you know, he cites a club like Atletico Madrid that sort of forced himself into that elite class right. just through good work. But I mean... Let's be honest, that is the, the quickest path to success, and you are sort of cutting that off uh, at, at the knees. So, you know, uh, I mean, Miguel Delaney in that, in that piece I cited, which was all about how, how money rules the game now and they, how troubling all this inequality is, and he had a great line. He said, people who cite the occasional success of low-spending clubs as a counter-argument to the idea that money rules the sport is the equivalent of people that cite a few cold days to dismiss global warming, you know, <laughs> that the wider trends are, are undeniable, and, and, and he pointed out how money does rule the sport, and if you're not spending uh, you know, crazy amounts of money consistently, it, it is very hard to achieve consistent success. So it's very hard for a club that's not rich to get to that level, unless you're fortunate enough to have a rich owner buy and be willing to spend it. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting, it's been an interesting debate the last few days. Okay, so sure. you think that if it does get changed, it'll still be a, a suspension, but it might be one year. I think it no might be one year. No matter what you think that Manchester City is not playing in Champions League next season. Correct. And by the way, I don't think they're going to be stripped of any uh, Premier League titles. There's been some talk about that. Uh, as we've seen in the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal, leagues are very wary about going back in time and stripping teams of titles. Right. Whatever punishment the Premier League hand down, it'll be something forward-looking, like a points deduction. Although I would say this, if you really want to hurt them with a points deduction, don't do it this season because City are kind of in this no-man's land this season anyway, where they're not going to catch Liverpool, they're not going to get relegated, right. and if they're not going to be in Europe next season, their league placement is irrelevant. So it would have to be like next season they start out with a minus 10 or something like that if you really want a punishment that feels real. I mean, what would stripping 10 points from their total be this season if they're not going to be in the Champions League? But... Well, Moss, you know my, my favorite movie quote of all time is from Liar Liar, Jim Carrey, where you know the, the uh, convict who's been sent to jail uh, for the 10th time or whatever calls up his lawyer who's Jim Carrey and says you know what should I do stop breaking the law <laughs> you know I mean that's that's what it is so uh, we're by to the way by. one last thing the punishment was a two-season ban from the Champions League and a 30 million euro <laughs> yeah. fine which brought to mind a story I read once John Gotti when he was sentenced to life in prison without parole was also hit with like a $200,000 fine and as he's walking out of the courtroom he's holding the bill in his hand and, and somebody says to him like John what do you think of the sentence and he's like 200 grand they really know how to stick it to you <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Moving on. Ask Alexi. 
All right, it's time for uh, Ask Alexi. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there, or Ask Mossy for that matter, on all the uh, social media platforms. You send us some questions, comments, concerns, and we pick a few of them out each week as we are about to do right here. All right, what do people want to know, Mossy? First up, at Midweight152, with the now imminent signing of Pizarro, Rodolfo Pizarro, that is, at Inter Miami and other League MX players moving to MLS, has League MX become a feeder league to MLS? Uh, Yes, I think Major League Soccer has become the destination for many players that uh, have stars in their eyes that want to uh, go to uh, uh, Europe, much more so than uh, than Liga MX. I'm, a, I'm being a little facetious, but not that far off. I think that there have been eyes that have been widened, um, certainly of in, in the recent years, and I do think that it has become a relevant destination for players. And we've talked about this before. Uh, you get paid, which is a huge part. Uh, you are safe, which is a huge part. You and your family are comfortable. Uh, it is not looked down upon as much as it has been in the past, especially when it comes to an international career. And there is a recognition now that this is a platform uh, from which you can show your wares and you can go on. Uh, this is a, a, an interesting signing coming over from Liga MX. Not the plenty of players now that have come uh, over, and I think there was a real desire from a league standpoint, to do that, to target Liga MX. But they also gave them some of the more of the resources. Still not as many resources as, uh, as the Liga MX teams, but more resources where you can start to compete for some of, these, uh, some of these players. And the message gets out there. It filters out there. Players talk about the circumstances on and off the field. And the more and more it gets out there, I think the more and more attractive uh, it, it becomes. This is an interesting signing. Is this the big, sexy signing that the inner Miami folk wanted? Not necessarily. But I think that, at least for now, Inter has said, we're not, we're not, going, to, we're not going to do that. It doesn't mean they're not going to spend money. And they spent a good boatload of money. I don't know what, whatever it was, but $10 million, whatever it ends up being, a good boatload of money to bring in an established talented player. It's not a worldwide phenomenon uh, and a name, but this was a this was a good signing. And I think once again, this is going to help you know, change hearts and minds out there that MLS is a destination and it's someplace that you want to go. Yeah, we're going to talk uh, CCL in the back three. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to step on that conversation completely because I think this is a big narrative uh, going into CCL uh, this year. And also, remember, the All-Star game uh, this year is an MLS 11 against the League MX 11. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, MLS is trying to slay this dragon that is League MX. But at the same time, there's a complex the other way now because folks in Mexico are very salty over the fact that all these Mexican players are choosing to go to MLS. I've read a lot of articles in the Mexican media recently talking about it. And why is MLS suddenly seen as a better bridge to Europe? than Mexico is. So I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating conversation to have and something that's going to be a big, big theme moving forward. And while we talk about it as a bridge, it, for some, it might, might not even be that bridge. Yes, Europe may or may not be there, but we, we just automatically assume that Europe is the be-all and end-all. And that's what every player at the end of the rainbow is, is looking for. And absolutely, the majority of them do look at that. And that's just the reality of the, the moment that we live in. But, you know, someone like... Uh, Diego Valeri or something like uh, something like that, where undeniable talent, 
needed something different, saw an opportunity, not just for himself, once again, for himself and his family to be in a place where he got the money, he got the soccer, he got the lifestyle that he wanted. I think as more as this happens with more and more players, and it's not just Mexican players, it's players that play in, in uh, Liga MX, I think as more and more do this, while they even may have started looking at it as a a way station as a stop on their move to Europe, I think some of them will be enchanted, if you will, with the scenario and the circumstances that they fall into. And I know he's not as big a star, but the Pizarro one actually shook them more than Chicharito because Chicharito, they could at least play the retirement league card. Pizarro, you're talking about a 25-year-old in his prime who was one of the best players in League MX, star midfielder on a Monterey team that won CCL last year, won the Apertura, and for him to decide to leave, they they figured if he left Mexico, it would be to go to Europe. So mm-hmm. for him to go to MLS, that really, really shook them a lot. Uh, and on Inter-Miami, you mentioned that. I'll ask you this question. Are you surprised that Inter-Miami so far are feeling a lot more like Atlanta than LA Galaxy? I know they hired the sporting director from Atlanta, Paul McDonough, and they seem to be going that route of younger South American or Central American players. Am I surprised? Um- I'm not surprised. I think, you know, and Paul McNaughton, I got a lot of respect for him. I'm actually, I was just writing something about him the other day because the way that he has gone about his business for the club, I think is really interesting. I don't know yet if it is smart, but certainly has a good track record. But Inter-Miami was positioned to be much more of a super club than I think it is. And because you have David Beckham, uh, because it's Miami, because of the long pro- or the prolonged type of uh, trials and tribulations that everything everything went through, I, I think Inter-Miami is going to be successful, but I, at least for the foreseeable future, it's probably going to be successful in a very different and unique way than a lot of us thought. What else? At John underscore 49 FIP SD. Wow. Right. Mouthful. Thoughts on Klinsman leaving Hertha? <laughs> So explain to the folks what what happened that didn't uh, didn't see this. Jurgen Klinsmann we're talking about here. Yes. Our um, old friend Jurgen. So he announced via a Facebook message that he was uh, leaving Hertha Berlin. And and he said, by the way, in the message, he would return to the board that he was previously on. And they said, no, 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 no. If you're leaving, you're leaving for good. Get the hell out of here. (laughs) People had different thoughts about that. Yeah, so he he cited a lack of trust, and he used a lot of sort of vague platitudes about lack of trust and cooperation within the organization. And listen, he looks completely ridiculous. He leaves after 10 games, after they spent more money than any other club in Europe over the winter. And to me, he already looked ridiculous anyway. And then Raphael Hanenstein uh, wrote an excellent piece in The Athletic that shed even more light on this and, and frankly infuriated me even more. I mean, we were told when he took over that this was just an interim thing. He was doing them a favor, holding down the fort. They're going to go after Niko Kovac in the summer. And then you find out that very soon after, he was already banging the drum for a contract extension as a coach and wanted this astronomical salary and all this power. And I don't know what Jurgen Klinsmann thought he had done to, to, to merit that. And then he starts talking about how he's more comfortable with the English model where the manager only has to answer to the owner. He doesn't have to go through sporting directors and, and such. And versus the, the only thing, slight thing I'll give him is I do think it's weird in Germany how the sporting director sometimes sits on the bench during games. That, 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 that's, yeah, that's, a little that's a little weird. But, but for the most part, and does, does he not realize England is actually trying to wean themselves off of that? 
they, they've decided it's not the right move to give the managers all this power. Right. And so they're actually trying to switch to more of a German model. And he's out there sort of, you know, romanticizing that and sort of pining for that. So, I mean, he looks completely ridiculous. Then you hear that he, upon taking over, he got rid of the goalkeeping coach just because he had, the goalkeeping coach had criticized Jonathan Klinsman a couple years earlier and brought in his own guy, Kopke. And, and so, I mean, it's just... It, I mean, frankly, I hate to say it's typical Jurgen Klinsmann. <laughs> yeah, and look, far be it for me to pass up an opportunity to hammer Jurgen Klinsmann, but you, you, you mentioned the fact that this was originally designed and the way that it was positioned to everybody was that this was a temporary gig and that he was, as you said, doing them a favor by coming down from the executive box uh, and because he was there and taking over and just getting things set. And yet, but then he shot himself in, in the foot. And unfortunately for him, he provided incredible fodder and examples for those that do like to criticize him. And, you know, the, the word about Jurgen Klinsmann has, has long been that he's not an X's and O's person. He's much more bigger picture type of stuff. And that he gets at times caught in the weeds and he does things that are completely abnormal and he comes and changes things around, um, takes people out of their comfort zone, takes things out of their comfort zone and in doing so creates a, uh, a wake of, of devastation that then he goes on and doesn't have to deal with, uh, with anymore. So this, this could have been okay for Jurgen, except in the way that he reacted, complaining about not getting enough money and yet being given more money than any club over the, uh, over the last, uh, over the last break and plenty of power. If it was going to be interim, he should have framed it like that and said, you know, I did what I needed to do and I wish, wish luck. And then he could have gone off and gone back to the board and done all that. But I mean, talk about burning bridges. I mean, he, <laughs> he, I mean, that was that was a whole river that was on fire with those bridges. The schadenfreude on the part of the American oh, yeah. soccer media. Yeah. The, the, the scale of it surprised you? I mean, it, it can't be that just people don't think he's a good coach. There's something about his personality that really rubbed the Matt Doyles and Grant Walls a wrong way. Like, what, what do you attribute, like, this complete hatred towards Jurgen Klinsmann? I think because there was this, this view of Jurgen that he could do no wrong— and it was based on uh, the cult of personality. It was based on the th- not what he said, but the thing, the way that he said things. And that this was this Pied Piper, and that many people believe that we, and I say we, were so glazed over by the music that he was spouting that we couldn't see the forest for the trees and we couldn't see that the road that he was taking uh, was one that was going to lead to failure and lead to to destruction. And I think a lot of people want tangible evidence and want very public evidence to be able to say, you see, this is what the problem was. And this is why it didn't ultimately work from a U.S. Uh, national team perspective. Last thing, then we'll move on. It is interesting that one of the criticisms of Klinsman when he was the U.S. coach was that he was disrespectful towards MLS and pushing players to go to Europe. Mm-hmm. And as we found out last week in the wake of your Timmy Chandler State of the Union, there is another camp out there that thinks that Klinsman had it right and thinks that the Bruce Arenas and Greg Berhalter's call up too many players from MLS and they need to be more recognizing of the fact that Europe. Well, is that's kind because of, there there is a 
there are certainly a group out there, and while I may disagree, I, I respect the fact that they have this opinion that, that they see Jurgen ultimately as telling us what we didn't want to hear. And in a certain ex- to a certain extent, we killed the messenger because we didn't like the message. And, and that's, that's legitimate. That's a fair argument. I, I disagree with, with it because you know, I believe that the message was false. Uh, and all along, it was false. And that this type of stuff happens. I take no pleasure in seeing somebody fail. I want Jurgen to be successful and have a long and happy and healthy uh, life and coaching career and, and, and do all those things. But when you put it in the context of the men's national team and the incredible failure that we, that we had, I think there's a lot of people out there that are saying, I told you. And if you would listen to me back then, we wouldn't have had to go further down that road. And yet this is just another example of why it was a problem. This is not an aberration. This is not an anomaly. This is ultimately what Jurgen Klinsmann is. And if you had seen it earlier, we could have avoided problems and we could have avoided the ultimate failure that happened in 2017 and not qualifying for 2018. Uh, Last question, the the, uh, Alex Dowd fun one. Alex Dowd, very quiet today. At Adrian underscore Viveros. If you didn't have a career in soccer, what would you want to be doing instead? I don't know, Alex. What would you be doing? Come on, let's uh, let's let's hear. I was just like, this is your big chance. I didn't think about it. I didn't, you know, prepare the rundown for myself. I Does did he for have you a guys. career in soccer? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very uh, fair point. Uh, so, for people that know me, know me, uh, know that I do uh, a tremendous amount of music. I have all my life, so I think I would be involved in music much to a much greater extent than I am right now. My father was a uh, professor. My mother worked as a writer, so I think I would be involved in the arts one way or, or in education. Uh, I could, you could see me, uh, Mr. Lawless, at some prep school, you know, doing a whole uh, pads on the uh, on the elbows and <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the all-time great quotes, uh, Peter Crouch was once asked, what would he be if he wasn't a soccer player? And he said, a virgin. <laughs> that, that, that's true <laughs> for him. Yeah, so that, yeah, those are the types of things. What about you? Do you, you have any other ideas of what you would be? Big history buff, yeah. so something with that. Uh, I also love traveling, so maybe something with... Uh, That's, is that a job, traveling? Yeah, I maybe host some travel shows. Oh, uh, on the road with yeah, Mossy. on the road with Mossy. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, those are the types of things that, uh, that I think about. And we all have times where we think about what could we have done or what would we be doing. But, you know, the life takes you down a, a certain path and... I'm I'm very happy as and as, as I tell you each and every time I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to do what I do and I know we all are very fortunate so I'm glad that I'm able to do it and if whatever I would be doing hopefully I would have the same amount of uh, of passion and excitement and emotion and and uh, friends and an environment to work in that I have uh, here in each and every day. Thank you, Adrian. Good question. All right, moving on. The back three. All right, it's time for our back three. Some big stories, games, and moments. We're going to fly through these here. UCL, UEFA Champions League, is upon us this week, and we're in the round of 16, right, Mossy? That's where, that's where we're at. What do we, what do we got? Do we have uh, Liverpool traveling to Madrid to take on Atletico, and uh, PSG traveling to uh, Dortmund, Valencia playing in Italy against Atalanta, and Leipzig 
going to uh, London to play against Spurs, right? Are those the four? Correct. Okay. So we're just going to dig into the four this week. We'll yeah, talk yeah, about we'll, next week's matchups next week. The rest of them will come next week. So anyone right off the bat stand out to you? Well, Liverpool, as you mentioned, returning to the stadium where they won the Champions League last season. And listen, when the draw was announced, uh, I said, look, if Atletico can get uh, João Felix on track and yeah, sign, a, sign a striker in January, they could be a handful for Liverpool. Neither of those things happened. João Felix is out injured and hasn't even been playing that well anyway. And they didn't sign Cavani, didn't sign any striker. So it's going to be Morata leading the line. Diego Costa might be available. He's coming back from a lengthy injury absence. But uh, this has really trended away from Atletico in the last couple months. I now see this as like a total mismatch. Atletico deserves some residual respect for everything they've accomplished the last decade. They've actually, if you look at their results against Real Madrid and Barcelona, they still have a habit of playing tough against the big boys. But I don't know. I, I see Liverpool all the way here, correct? Yeah, I see Liverpool there. I think the most interesting one for me is Dortmund PSG uh, because of what Dortmund is and more importantly, I guess, what they have become since we last left them. That's that's the interesting thing As last time we saw these, these teams playing in Champions League, they might have been one thing and now they might be something different. And that's Thomas Tuchel facing his former club. He left Dortmund in kind of a bad way, so I'm sure he would love nothing more than to beat his former club. Uh, it's interesting. The media can't figure out in in the sort of the young player matchup department whether to make it Mbappe versus Holland or Mbappe versus Sancho as like the sexy young player head-to-head matchup. I go Mbappe Sancho. I love Holland, but Sancho, you know, I'm enamored uh, with him. I got a question about to Sancho me, for you. Those so. those two are the two. There are a lot of good young players in the world. Those are the two most transcendent talents out there right now that could like literally dominate the next decade. And so to see them on the same field together going head-to-head it will be absolutely delicious for me. I can't wait. How how much are you? What do the kids say? Stan? Is that are you stand for someone? Is that how much are you standing for uh, Jaden Sancho? Uh, I'm I mean, like quite a, because you call you talking about the best young player. I mean, Messi is Messi, but he's not really the Messi that he was. Cristiano is Cristiano, but he's not really Cristiano. I mean, is Jaden Sancho one of the top three players in the world? Yeah, it's always interesting when you make that transition when you, you don't you're not looked upon anymore as as a great young player, just a great player. Period. I think Mbappe has made that transition. He's now clearly looked upon as one of the top five players in the world, and Sancho is just about there too. If I was doing a top ten right now, he would he would definitely well, top be in five. There. Would Jaden Sancho be in your top five, Mossy? Top five, I'd have to really think about it, but okay. it's it's not that right. ridiculous. One one note on Neymar, you know, he 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 was playing brilliantly. He was playing very unselfishly. He was earning loads of praise from the French media for finally buying in and maturing. Gab Marcotti wrote a glowing piece maturing. about him a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and then and then this silly birthday party business. He the fact that he can't dial it down for one year, it always has to be like the party of the century. He can't sort of recognize that this season is all about repairing his image, and then he he, he picks up this mysterious injury that's caused him to miss the last four games. So. All of a sudden, I thought he was going to be coming into this tie flying because a couple weeks ago he was playing some of the best football I've ever seen him play. He's now missed four games in a row, so he is going to be fit for this game, but we'll see if, if, if there's any rust or how it affects him. But, boy, I'm really hoping he's raring to go because this season he really needs to show up in these Champions League knockout games. And while Dortmund is on the ascendancy, what's the opposite of the ascendancy when a team's going? Because Leipzig uh, is not the Leipzig that we have seen over the last well, uh, couple of months. Uh, but, but, but one, oh, there's a big but coming. I can well, feel it. Go. One last quick note on Dortmund. Just, oh, okay. There's an Ameri- prominent American involved. Royce is out. Julian Brandt possibly out, which Giorena keeps moving up that, that depth chart. But I, I do think it's going to be to start out. If Brandt isn't fit, it's going to be uh, Holland, Sancho, and Thorgan Hazard as a front three. But Giorena, like the first guy off the sure. bench so expect to see him playing these games so that that's a fun little subplot too but yeah switching over to uh, 
Tottenham Leipzig. Yeah, I don't know. I think Leipzig drew a lot of strength from that scoreless draw against Bayern. And then this past weekend, they thumped Bremen and kind of flexed the muscles. Felt like a first half of the season type performance for Leipzig. So maybe they've gotten their mojo back. Obviously, a lot of the focus here is on the managers, Mourinho against Nagelsmann. I mean, how how fascinated are you to see those two guys match wits? I don't care about (laughs) coaches matching wits. It's never... I, I love coaches and I love big managers and big, bold, arrogant type of personalities. But I never... When people say, I'm fascinated to see these two coaches... I'm not telling you anything you don't know, and if it is, here, okay, here's a dirty little secret. The, the coaches have very, very little effect ultimately when the teams uh, go on the field. I'm not saying they're not. I'm not saying they're not important, but this matching of wits and tactical acumen between the between the two whatever uh, on the american front disappointing looks like tyler adams is out yeah. uh, injured this yep. is the kind of game you would have wanted to see him play in but yeah just for a couple weeks though it's not, it's not yeah really obviously serious, harry kane's still out so it's going to be sun leading the line for tottenham he, he scored two goals against villa this past week and he's in great form and then leipzig it'll obviously all about timo werner also patrick schick has done really well pushed your boy Yusuf Poulsen out of the starting lineup, pushed my boy Matthias Cunha completely out of the club. He's at Hertha Berlin, where he thought he was going to be playing for Jurgen Klinsmann. But, um, <laughs> uh, and then we'll see where Nagelsmann goes in, you know, behind Werner. There's going to be Forsberg and Kunku, Olmo, and he's got a lot of options there. But uh, that's gonna, that's, to me, that's a 50-50 Tottenham-Leipzig. Fascinating. Well, you know, notwithstanding what we talked about at the top of the show about, uh, or, the, or in the uh, Mossy Makes a Case segment about the uh, the demise of the super club or or that super league if it, if it comes it is still fascinating to see and as i said you know this is where i think a lot of our perceptions of these teams are established both positive and and negative as opposed to uh, their uh, their league play. So you got something else? I'll leave uh, you with this last thing. Atalanta Valencia. Listen, uh, credit to those two clubs for getting this far, and one of them is going to be in the quarterfinals. I picked Atalanta as one of my sleepers this year. I love what Gasparini's doing. Ilicic, uh, great form. Zapata. Uh, Valencia have a young player I love in Ferran Torres, who I think is going to be probably the star of Spain's Olympic team this summer. We keep talking about the Olympics, and all that is fine. But it is the ultimate hipster thing to try to act like you're excited about Atalanta Valencia in the face of all these other matchups in this round. And I've heard one or two people try to do that. And I'm sorry, it's a nice matchup, but uh, give me Real Madrid, Manchester City, and uh, Chelsea Bayern. Wait, who's and, out there uh, screaming and yelling about Atalanta that, that Valencia? That has become a little really? bit of a hipster. There. I'll tell you the matchup I'm really excited God, about. Atalanta. <laughs> You don't want to punch them in the face when they're doing that. Oh, my goodness. All right. right. Should we transition to the real uh, yes. Champions League? I mean, there there is Champions League, and then there is Champions yes, League, yes. okay? Uh, we shouldn't be cracking jokes because it is on our network now. I'm uh, not cracking jokes. I, I don't know. Were we joking there? I don't know. So, I wasn't joking. So the CONCACAF Champions League uh, round of 16 gets underway this week. Yep. And, you know, we touched on this in the, in the uh, Ask Alexi. Uh, this is, let's be honest, a real sort of League MX versus MLS grudge match here. There's only actually one League MX versus MLS matchup in the round of 16. It's LAFC taking on Lyon. And then on the MLS front, you have Montreal, now managed by Terry Henry, taking on Saprissa. You have uh, NYCFC taking on San Carlos of Costa Rica. And then uh, Seattle taking on Olympia. And Atlanta United taking on Motagua, both of those Honduran clubs. Uh, give me some overall thoughts. You just, you just pulled that out of your head. You didn't even look at notes on that. You're incredible. I, I like this quintet. Uh, I think MLS yeah, I, has got a real chance I, here to... to... Uh, I think this is the year. I, I can't tell you who, but I think this is the year. Eventually, the dam's got to break. Eventually, it's going to happen. And by the way, when it does happen, it will still be with one hand behind their backs in terms of what MLS is 
given in order to compete with uh, with Liga MX, which will make it that much more in, in, you know incredible and worthy of uh, worthy of praise. Uh, I'm excited about this. As you mentioned, we will be broadcasting it. You can find it on FS2 and you can find it on Fox Sports Plus, uh, Fox Soccer Plus, excuse me, at different times. So you will be able to see this. And I think there is a, a general pride about the North American uh, and the MLS teams involved. But it also, there was a time where it was just all about MLS, MLS, MLS. And if you're a neutral, yes, it's about MLS. But there also is a competition within the competition to be that first MLS team that does plant the flag to win this competition in its in its current form, and it's very different form than back, uh, back in the day. A few miscellaneous talking points. How bad a look is it for NYCFC to have to play their home leg at Red Bull Arena? I know there are supporters groups that have come out and said yeah. they're going to boycott the game. Yeah, I... I I don't see it. First off, this was a possibility and a potential last couple of years because of the reality of playing at Yankee Stadium. And look, everybody understands that that's not ideal. It's not something that you want. We can scream and yell to a blue in the face, and until they get it done, we will continue to scream and yell. That they are going to play their uh, CONCACAF Champions League game in not just uh, a uh, another team stadium, but their major rival when it comes to the New York metropolitan area and the Red Bulls, I get why people are bent out of shape, but I look at it the opposite way. I say that they're coming in and drinking their milkshake, okay? They are, they are going into their home. Uh, and why are they doing it? Because the Red Bulls aren't in it, and they're nowhere close to getting uh, getting in it. So that that's... That's what you get to do. You get to go into their house, sit down on their couch, pull up their remote control, drink their beer, all right, and have yourself a party. And then you don't have to clean up because you get the hell out of there. So I, I would look at it from, uh, from that perspective. And you get, you, you get what you need in terms of the result. You use the Red Bulls for what they have, which is that stadium available. And then you get out of Jersey. Atlanta, by the way, this has been much less publicized, but they're going to have a lot of issues too. Their second leg against Motagua, there's a scheduling conflict at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, so it's going to be at the stadium of Kennesaw State University. And then future rounds are in jeopardy too because the Final Four is actually in Atlanta this year, and so there could be a conflict there. And so, uh, yeah, it's a shame that these teams don't get to play these matches in their home stadium. But let me ask you about LAFC and Leon, and then we'll move on. Obviously, yeah. uh, Carlos Vela facing a Mexican team, yeah. that's, that's tasty. But LAFC, incredible regular season. Then they, they, they don't win MLS Cup. We, know we went back and forth on that, on the sort of the merits of their season. Uh, how much is this an opportunity to sort of wrestle that narrative back if they become the first team ever to win CONCACAF Champions League? And then you look at, oh, they won the Supporters' Shield, right. broke all those records, and then went on to, okay, they had one bad day against Seattle. But you'd still look at this period in totality and say, yeah, this... It, this. it would be a really interesting question to ask either the, the team, but then also the supporters as to what would you rather if you could only have one? Because remember, they... Uh, they uh, pounded their chest last year and said, yes, we, we won the Supporters' Shield. Okay, but it's all about MLS Cup, right? Nobody's <laughs> going to remember that they won the Supporters' Shield. It's all about MLS Cup. When it comes to the CONCACAF Champions League, I think that there is such a tension and, and, and a drive to have somebody do it that I think, especially when it comes to LAFC, well, they still haven't won an MLS Cup. See, that's the thing. I still think MLS trumps everything else. But I, there's a part of me that says... LAFC in particular, 
would say, we want to be that first. We want to be the ones that are relevant, not just to MLS having won won an MLS Cup, which they haven't done yet, but we want to be relevant in our region. We want to be the champions of CONCACAF. Somebody gets to say that. All right. If if an MLS team win, that MLS team gets to say we are the champions of Concacaf. That means we are the champions of all of the different leagues in Concacaf, including Liga Liga MX. And I think that there is a part of LAFC that wants that. I think there's a part of Bob Bradley that wants that. And would they trade that off for an MLS Cup? I'm not sure now. I think Seattle would. I think that Atlanta would because they've won those MLS Cups uh, in recent years. And to put that feather in the cap, to be the first, because everybody, lots of people have won MLS Cup, but to be that first that's won CONCACAF Champions League in this in this current form, I think there's something special that you will never be never take away, and I think that there's a value to that. And they're facing a team in Lyon that's had great regular season success, but come up short in the playoffs in Liga MX, so it's kind of funny that those two teams were drawn against each other. We'll end in England. Uh, there were some Premier League games this past weekend. Liverpool clinched a, a top four finish, which is amazing in mid-February. It's add <laughs> insult to injury to Manchester City. Right, they had to right. listen to Liverpool fans be able to celebrate that they will sure. definitely be in the Champions League next season. Uh, Arsenal thumped Newcastle. But this is what I want to talk about. And we can bring Alex Dowd into this conversation if he'd like. I'm sure he has thoughts on it. Are we talking about Chelsea? Yes. <laughs> Chelsea, who, who, by the way, we're taping this on a Monday. They play Manchester United later today. They've already agreed a deal for next season for Hakim Ziyech, who is this Moroccan winger, we'll call him a slash playmaker, who plays for Ajax. He's a left-footed player, kind of a Riyad Mahrez, likes operating from the right, cutting in. Uh, key figure in their fantastic run to the Champions League semis. Very talented player. Lampard, super excited. They're paying 40 million euros for him. Lampard is already talking about how you know the, what role envisions for him next season. And Lampard was asked, are you concerned that his arrival could stunt guys like Mason Mount um, and, and you know, Hudson Adoy. Right. And, and Lampard said, no, when I was at Chelsea as a young player, they were always signing midfielders like Essien and Balak, and that actually motivated me to, to get better, and the competition is healthy. And so he's, he's selling it as that. But I just wonder, you know, I thought Chelsea was going to be very active in January. They weren't. But here's their first big signing for the summer. I suspect there will be more, and we could bring Pulisic into this conversation too. As, as you know, they back up the truck here, and now let's say two or three star attacking players arrive. Are you concerned at all about Pulisic specifically and just this whole thing, they, they, this path they seem to be going on with young players, is that just going to go out the window? You mean, are, am I concerned that Christian Pulisic is going to get Wally pipped? <laughs> <laughs> Mossy taught me that so many years ago, and I use it constantly. Am I concerned? I mean, Christian Pulisic is constantly hurt. So it's not as if we're relying on him anyway from a... From an individual perspective, yeah, I'm concerned because it doesn't matter what they paid for you. It doesn't matter how good you are when you're, when you're, when you were playing. It's about Janet Jackson. What have you done for me lately? And if incoming talent is as good or better and is healthy, then yeah, that's a problem for for Christian Pulisic. But that you know that w- that would be the case. That would be the case anywhere. That's a that's. Frank Lampard's job is not to help American soccer or to help American soccer players. His job is to get this team that wears blue to win as many games as possible with whoever he feels is appropriate. Yeah, I still wonder about Lampard and Pulisic. I think ultimately Lampard, all things being equal, 
might be a little bit more biased towards English players or to players he brought in, like Ziyech. You know, Pulisic wasn't his signing. And I just wonder, you know, this injury has kind of diluted a little bit the, the effect of that incredible run of form he had. I mean, Alex Dowd, get in here. Uh, do you think Pulisic has shown enough that even if he comes back in the next few months or aren't that spectacular, that he is definitely a core building block guy for the future? Or no, uh, U.S. fans have to be leery here of who Chelsea might bring in in the summer and, and, and maybe it could, you know, go the wrong way for him. I think you always have to be, quote-unquote, leery of someone being brought in. But looking at who they're starting today against Manchester United, you have a front three of Pedro, William, and Batshuayi. So I think a guy like Ziyech is, that just proves that you need somebody because he would walk right into that front three right away and there's room for Pulisic, hudson Adoy, anybody else that they potentially could bring in as well because I think you're looking at a turnover where the wingers are on their way out very similar to what Bayern did a couple of years ago with Robin and uh, Ribéry sort of a changing of the guard there so I don't think you have outright concern but there's room to be you know a little suspicious of potentially him getting move down the pecking order if we can't stay healthy. If you had to predict right now, uh, would Christian Pulisic be a quote-unquote starter for Chelsea at the beginning of next season, assuming he's healthy? Assuming he's healthy and he recaptures even a little bit of the form that he had before he got injured, I think you have that case, but it's tough to speculate that far Can we get a yes or no? I mean, what's going on here? Will he be starting for Chelsea next year? Yes. Chelsea have been mentioned for Sancho. I don't think he's going to end up there, but you would be all, all for that, right? Oh, absolutely. And then in which case, Pulisic wouldn't be a starter anymore. Probably not. Can you just say Sancho is the best player in the world? Just do it. I mean, just put it out there at, at a certain point. I actually, I actually tweeted that I'm going to name his, my firstborn Jaden, regardless of whether it's a boy or girl. It does work. It's one <laughs> it of those works, names yeah. that can... It works. It works. <laughs> All right. Anything else about the EPL, Masi? Uh, no, that's it. Thank you to Alex Dowd for his comments. Appreciate it. Exactly. Oh, yeah. My, my pleasure. Luis, are you still there over there? I mean, at least say something this week. Would you recline if you were on an airplane? Yeah. You would? Yeah. You think it's your right, having bought the airplane ticket and uh, having being, sit, being sat in a seat that reclines to be able to do that? Yeah. If you didn't want somebody to recline on you, just get a different seat next time. God, you're such an <laughs> asshole. All right. Man, oh, man. I, didn't, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. All right. All right. Anything else, Mossy? Uh, nope. All right. Well, we come to the end of uh, yet another show. And at the end of each show, uh, as you know, we now do One for the Road. I'm going to tell you a little story uh, about, oh, gosh, this, is, this would have been December of 1992. I was nobody yet when it came to playing soccer. And I was set up for a trial in England at Arsenal. A uh, former outside back, Bob McNabb, was nice enough to uh, send me over and uh, give me a, a, open a door for me to go in there and have a trial. And I spent uh, the better part of uh, December and into January in a hotel room going back and forth to uh, trial with, uh, with Arsenal. I even played in a reserve game. And this was brought to my attention uh, the other day when an account called the Arsenal Collection tweeted out the actual starting lineup in there. And among others, uh, it was myself. There was uh, Lee Dixon was part of that lineup. We played against Luton Town 
in a, uh, what do you call it, a reserve match, if you will. Uh, Lee Dixon was part of that. Anders Limpar, who many of you, not many of you, but some of you might remember, uh, uh, international, and some other folks uh, there. You can check it on my uh, Twitter feed. It was an incredible experience. It didn't amount to anything. I came back, not with my tail between my legs, it just didn't work out. And I came back, and I would go to London Colney, the uh, training facility for Arsenal, and each and every day, Ian Wright, Paul Mercer, and Tony Adams would pick me up and drive me to training. And then after training, we would go back and they would want to eat. And they would pull off into a, what amounted to like a TGIF or a Bennigan's or a Chi-Chi's, you know, one of these places. They were, they were infatuated with, what do you call it when they, when they take potatoes and they go uh, and they cut them in half? Potato skins or whatever? The, the potato skins? They were infatuated with potato skins or pot stickers or whatever it ended up being, the, the, the usual fare from these things. And so I would sit at a bar eating potato stickers with, with these three Arsenal legends. And as I said, it was 1992. It didn't work out. Uh, they were incredibly nice, and I, I learned a lot about myself, and it was a really beneficial experience, even though it, it didn't amount to anything. But a couple years later, I was playing in a World Cup in, uh, in front of the world. And that's only to say that in a very short period of time, things can change in the way that you are perceived and your life situation can change. But all of those different experiences that you have, including this one, made me the player I was, made me the, the person I was. I remember spending that Christmas, because I didn't go back, all alone in my hotel room. Woe was me. Oh, woe was me. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was, like I said, a really, really interesting time in my life. I had come off the Olympics that summer, and I'd broken my foot in the Olympics, and so I was coming off of an injury, and it was an eye-opening experience to see not just Arsenal, but English football, I'll use that word, and what, uh, what it was at the time, certainly what it's become uh, now. I don't have any regrets, but I always think about what it would have been like to play in the EPL, certainly the EPL, what it is now, but how my style and, and how the player I was, if I had gone and played there, what it would have been. But there was that brief little window where I was over trialing for Arsenal uh, and playing against good old Luton Town in a reserve match many, many years ago. Gosh, almost 30 years ago. It's amazing. Flies by. Flies by, Mossy. Uh, Mossy, anything else before we head out? Nope. Uh, we appreciate you uh, listening, downloading, reviewing, subscribing, doing all the different things that you do out there. We encourage you to continue to do that and continue to tell your friends or not friends uh, about the pod. And uh, we are very, very fortunate that we have people that actually listen to it. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the State of the Union podcast. And until then, size the day. <laughs> <laughs>